Welcome to episode 149 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco, and thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry, and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And uh, we've had uh, a few crime authors on recently, and that continues this week. Yeah, this week we're chatting with Louise Candlish, who is a crime author, a prolific crime author. She's written dozens of books and uh, started back in 2004. Her latest is The Only Suspect, which is out today at time of uh, release. Yeah, I think, yeah, yesterday I think it was out in the bookshelves. Yesterday, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting novel set in 1995, which uh, sets up that really interesting um, place of not having to rely on how do you get past a cell phone or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we chat, we chat about that. Is that is that the way, you know, because modern tech must have ruined a lot of crime plots, oh, potentially. Yeah. So so many classic stories just wouldn't work anymore. Yeah, so, exactly. Kind of so, so yeah, setting it in the past is, is perhaps the way to, to beat that. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and we, you know, she's, she's a, a very, a, she's prolific, as you say, but she's also a, very successful. She's won the British Book Awards Crime and Thriller Book of the Year in 2019. She's been a Richard and Judy book club pick. And she talks about the importance of these things and what a difference that can make to an author to be on these lists. So, um, yeah, it's a really great chat. We'll get straight into it after a quick advert for our writer's notebook. And then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about our next guest for our 150th episode. Oh, exciting. But for now... On with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Did you always want to be a writer? Um, no, I don't think so. I can't actually remember when I thought I might like to be a writer. Um, I did write as a child um, ridiculous novels um with ridiculous titles and they were illustrated with ridiculous illustrations um but then I kind of you know got into other things and um wanted to work in tv or wanted to work in marketing um so I kind of forgot about my writing ambitions genuinely forgot about them um until I was kind of in my early 30s so so Um, what was it that, that drew you back into that world then Well, I think that it was partly that I just had some time off. I had worked nonstop from from, you know, virtually the day of leaving university to um, going on this sabbatical in my early 30s. 
I went to Sicily just backpacking for two months. It wasn't a big deal. But I obviously just had this kind of working discipline and just found it very, very difficult to sort of to not do anything. Mm -hmm. And so the moment I was on my own, I I just felt my brain starting to, to work. And I had this sort of sudden idea for a story and it was set there. So I think I was obviously inspired by the setting. Um, and so I just started writing it um, in a notebook, not unlike one of your notebooks. <laughs> and um, and when I got back, I, um, you know, I, I typed it up. I mean, it sounds like something from the 50s, doesn't it? The idea that you would <laughs> um, do anything in longhand. This was in 2001, um, end of 2001. So over 20 years ago now. Yeah, and that book that book was published. I was very lucky that my very first attempt. So was that, that published. book became became Prickly Heat. Yes, Prickly Heat, which has literally just been reissued, actually, oh, nice. um, many years later as the Island Hideaway. Oh, um, okay, not okay. very many people bought it with its first title, so I think it was considered okay to change the title. <laughs> <laughs> so, so once you'd you know you'd you'd been on your holiday and or your. Um, travels and you came back and you you typed up this novel what was it that made what did you do next what's your next step did you think this needs to do some redrafting do you think i'm going to start trying to find an agent what was your next moves um well i kind of worked on it in a sort of instinctive way um you know improving it and adding little layers i mean now when i read it you know it's incredibly simple linear story um, although actually there are some flashbacks, so you know it wasn't wasn't you know it wasn't totally journaling, um, but um, yeah, I just um, I I um, researched how to get an agent. I just mm. I wasn't working in the industry. I had previously worked in nonfiction publishing, but that didn't really involve agents, and okay. um, you know it was completely separate industry. So I didn't have any contacts at all. So I just looked at what you were supposed to do, and what you were supposed to do was um, go and have a look at the acknowledgements in books that you'd enjoyed Mm, and um, see who those authors agents were and then you approached them and in those days it was you know you you printed out the first three chapters you composed a letter and printed it out and then you sent it all off um, and then you waited six weeks for yay or nay from from one agent and only when you'd heard back from that agent were you supposed to then try the next one so it seemed like a, you know, I'm quite impatient and it seemed like a, you know, very long-winded protocol. Mm. Um, so I broke the rules and sent out to sort of eight agents at once. I got my first rejection um, after six weeks. Um, and um, I thought, right, I can't be waiting. I can't go go through 100 agents yeah. with six oh. weeks each. So when I think about it now, it feels so innocent and um, and sweet and naive because now it's, you know, pe- people it will just maybe send i don't know 250 agents at one one um click, click of, of, the, yeah. of the enter yeah. key yeah. um so yeah it was all very um you know all, all much slower then and um i think it kind of probably did weed out people who weren't really that interested and were just trying mm, their yeah. luck because you know there was a there was a financial input you had to pay for postage you had to yeah not everyone had a printer you had to go and, and pay for printing it is a very different world now, isn't it? I mean, I mean, as you yeah. say, it's, it's not just the that kind of little bit of a barrier put off, puts off a lot of people in terms of the effort to ship it out to mail it to people. But I suppose you've also got the, the Kindle store and people can put their own books out there. So it yeah. is, it's, it's amazing how it's changed yeah. over the last 15, it's, 10 yeah, years. So. It's so great. I mean, I think it's really good now. I think it is, you know, difficult for agents and um, editors who probably have far more submissions than they ever had in the old days. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, those are the, those who span both pre-digital and digital yeah. eras. But it's just great that everyone everyone has access. I think that, you know, when I was starting out, it felt very closed circle it felt quite oxbridgey there was you know real snobbery about commercial fiction um the newspaper critics were um you know very much a closed shop um there were no bloggers diluting the mix it was just a really narrow gene pool and um you know I, i even though i probably seem like someone who's very much an insider i was completely an outsider i didn't know anyone at all and just had to figure it all out for myself um, but you know that's why we have agents because um, they they've already got it figured out. And and so how how many uh, of these letters did you have to send out before before you got some interest? 
um I can't remember exactly maybe 10 um and then I had a few then I went on holiday or I went away for the weekend or something and I came back and picked up um voicemail um on the landline my god I would honestly do feel like I'm, I'm giving you a, his, a, a historical yeah I checked my faxes um, yeah and I had a few who were interested and so I you know chatted to them on the phone but I always tell um first-time authors who are looking for an agent that um, one agent I didn't hear from until after the book was on the shelf wow. and um which was a good two years later, and it was a rejection. <laughs> <laughs> Satisfying rejection. Yeah, yeah. There's probably still rejections in the post, <laughs> um, lost in the post from that era, because I don't think I did hear from everyone. But, you know, those were the days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and that, that must have been, you know, quite a, a sense of achievement, getting that first book out there. And... And since then, you've been, you know, hugely prolific. You've essentially been a book a year when you look at your back uh, list of books. I mean, I have to say, how do you manage to keep your schedule? <laughs> well, don't forget that's sort of all I've done. I haven't, you know, some people are working full time um, and and still knocking out books every year. So I don't think it's that much of an accomplishment in terms of, you know, the amount of work that you need to do. Um but I think what has been, you know, what I am quite proud of is just having new ideas every mm-hmm. year. And um, and because I much prefer the ideas stage to the execution of the idea, um, you know, pat on the back to myself, for, um, you know, for actually seeing it through, because I do find the process quite painful um, at times. And, you know, I'm always wanting to get on to the next thing because I've, I've had the next big idea. Um, so I guess I've just, I've always had a work ethic. I've always worked. I mean, you know, as I just said, you know, I couldn't even go backpacking for two months without starting a project. Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't have ever imagined I would turn into that workaholic person, but it turns out that that's what I am. So, I mean, I I wanted to touch on that, your actual process. Is it quite a, a sort of daily routine in terms of your writing? Do you work right between certain hours and things like that? Um, when I'm writing, which is by no means that all all year round, um, I will I will try and get some words down as early in the morning as I can, by which I mean 9.30. I don't mean, you know, 6.30. But, you know, I don't lounge around and then start in the afternoon. And I know some people are very much night owls and, you know, get their mm-hmm. work best work done late at night. I t- I'm more of a daytime writer. Um, but, you know, when there's a deadline, I'll I'll just work seven days a week, whatever hours I need to work. Um, it's quite loose and I think that's because I just have the confidence now that I know I'm going to get it done I've you know there's no such thing as writer's block for me Mm. I know that you that I have to just you know sort of power through even if I'm not feeling very inspired and I know that I will do that because I've done it 16 times now yeah um and so um so yeah, I'm I'm quite relaxed about it. I've never done that kind of um, daily word count because um, that gives me the heebie-jeebies. I mean, one bad day, I'm constantly having bad days, and then <laughs> you know I might start to to feel the doubts. And so I tend to do weekly or even monthly word counts, um, but they tend to be you know along the lines of a thousand words a day. So it will be you know I might get you know get, um, challenge myself to do you know, six or 7,000 words a week rather than 5,000, but mm-hmm. it would normally be about 5,000. And, you know, if you know what you're writing and you just get on with it, you, you've got a first draft quite quickly. If you think yeah. that, you know, it's going to be eighty or 90,000 words um, and you're doing 5,000 a week, it doesn't yeah. take that long. But then the kind of, you know, the, the process of improving and layering and rewriting and redrafting and you know, there's so much I do so much before anyone else sees it because it's just a shameful mess um, <laughs> until it's had the, you know, the full works. Well, that, that first draft that you do then, you know, you as you see, if you have 5000 words a week, 80,000 word book, you can get through it quite quickly. But but then how much thinking goes into and planning goes into that before you even put a word on, on on the page do you spend a lot of time planning out so when it comes to getting those five thousand words a week you know where you're going with it or do you kind of pants it a little bit well there's a bit of planning I do I mean I, I I know what the main idea is 
and I know what the things that I'm obsessed with are because I tend to have sort of the obsessions or the the themes kind of gathering in my mind as I'm finishing the the one before and so they're all ready to be explored um I I mean I don't do an enormous amount of research anyway but I've recently started outsourcing my research because it was taking up some time Um, and and with the only suspect because it's set in the 90s Mm. Um, and even though I was in my 20s then and you know having the time of my life I I actually discovered that I couldn't remember that much about it in terms of the sorts of details I needed for the book and so I outsourced that research to a researcher. So how does that um, work? Is that someone that you basically have a contract with and you see? Yeah, it's, that, it's my husband. Want. Yeah, okay. <laughs> He's a professional researcher. I and see, okay. um, so I hired him. Um, I hadn't been able to use him before because he'd been working full time. But as soon as he became available, I was like, oh, do you fancy helping me? Um but yeah, no, it's a it's um it's a good arrangement um, because he's really brilliant at research and enjoys it, and I'm I find it quite boring. I I much prefer yeah. writing to researching. That's interesting. Um, but I've at the same time, who's done he's outsourced research before? I don't think on the, on the podcast. That's, that's that's something that a lot of writers or you'd recommend writers do. If I they think can. people, yeah, I think if you're really really busy, you might do that. But I think most writers would consider it to be part of how the ideas form in the first place. Um, which I do get that. Um, and so I, so there's always a little bit that I'll do myself because, you know, how do you know um, a great detail um, until you sort of find it? Yeah, um, yeah. But I've been able to sort of brief in such a way that I think he knows exactly what it is I'm looking for. And, yeah. um, you know, because we're married and, you know, we live together, I may, he knows what I'm looking for. So, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, um, I'm writing something at the moment and it involves paddle boarding and um, which is a bit random but I'll say um, see what horrible accidents they've been involving paddle paddle boarding and you know how could someone sabotage someone else's paddle boarding experience and you know how long can you survive in the sea if you've you know come off your leash and your paddle board and you've lost your lost Mm -hmm. lost your paddle so he knows the kind of dark stuff I'm looking for so um, it's a good arrangement but I still do a lot of stuff myself um, so to, that's a very long answer to the question. Um, but so there's there's loose planning. There might be um, probably I'll start with a blurb, which um, I used to be a copywriter and I found that it's just a really good way for me to crystallize what I think the selling point of the book might be, okay. because, you know, ultimately people are going to have to sell this thing, even if it's just in a line or two. Um, you know, your agent's going to have to sell it, your editor has to sell it to the sales force, the sales force have to sell it to the retailers, the retailers have to sell it to the readers. And so it's got, we've got to know what it is that it's about. Um, So I'll do a blurb so that I've I've got that clear um, even before I start. Um, And then, um, you know, maybe if there's an American editor involved, I might even do a full synopsis because that they do... um, often ask for that and that's quite good as well that helps me sort of get the plot clearer Um, but otherwise I'm usually raring to go and I'm keen um, always keen first of all to get the voice um, nailed because then that's when I start to really enjoy it if I if I've got the voice of the narrator which is you know obviously much easier if it's first person Um, but even if it's a third person narrator I'm always telling the story from in their in their heads Um, it's never you know I'm not the grand authorial voice speaking through them it's always their voice from and their thoughts and their interior life um so yeah and then um and then I'm I just I I just try and be relaxed because I do find that good ideas and twists and things do come to me as I write so I don't want to have it all inflexibly sorted before I start I want to be open to improvements and you know that's a good attitude to have because that's what you need once the editing process starts as well you don't want to be closed to someone's amazing brainwave you want to be like yeah I'll I'll take that I'll take credit for that sure I'll incorporate that brilliant (laughs) twist that you just suggested well actually Um, (laughs) I I read that that, you had said that you actually enjoy the the structural edit part of of the process which you know some people really like the the initial drafting of the novel and hate the sort of redrafting and revision side, but others very much, you know, writing is rewriting kind of idea and are fans of that. And I think you fall in the latter camp probably. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I do like the whole thing, 
Um, I like, um, I suppose I'm just sort of in love with the creative process, actually. Mm -hmm. I really like um, starting with something that's a bit scrappy and just a couple of ideas and then ending up with a really well-crafted, multi-layered, authentic sounding um, piece of work. And so I sort of welcome all of the process. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, I don't sort of, um, you know, absolutely sigh in horror when the 20 pages of notes come through you know there's a, but again it's part of the process it's like oh my god because if you think every time you show your work to to someone you think it's as good as it can yeah. get uh-huh. yeah. but I've learned that it's not as good as it can get and that actually that it's the dis it's the time away from the draft Definitely, I think yeah. is mm-hmm. um almost as valuable I think it's probably more valuable to have a month away from a draft than to have done another draft in that month and then started on the one after. Mm. Um, I've just found that because you go back to it so fresh. And so um, depending on the schedule and, you know, when the when the publication date is, I will say to my editors, can I, you know, take as long as you like, um, because it would be really great if I can have two months off and I'll go off and do something else. And then when I come back to it, I've got their notes. We'll have the discussion. I'll read it again. And I and it will be like I'm a reader then rather than yeah. remembering every detail. And, you know, you get attached to passages that um, because they, you know, they're quite well written. But it turns out that they're, you know, they're actually slowing the pace down or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. it's just that time away. But it's not always possible. It's, you know, sometimes it's not possible. So my um, aim is always just to give the absolute best quality I can in the time I've got. Yeah. And you, and you mentioned there about um, having kind of ideas for the next book in your head a little bit as you come to the end of one. And, and what, what is the idea for you? Is it, is it, is it tend to be a, a kind of plot point that kicks something off or is it a character that you want to take somewhere? What, what's the starting point? It could be anything. It's generally a crime or a deception I have found and um, it could be inspired by watching an old movie. So um, The Only Suspect, there's a, I think, quite obvious tribute to a Hitchcock movie in there. Um, but I won't say what it is because it, your, your listeners will immediately um, guess what the twist is. Um, there's, it could be another book I've read. Um, I tend to read classics or older books rather than contemporary ones for inspiration because I really don't want to be copying a contemporary um, and, you know, even subconsciously. So um, with The Only Suspect, I was really inspired by Barbara Vine's A Fatal Inversion, which um, actually I I heard as a radio dramatization. I didn't even read the audio book. It was a dramatization from years and years ago. And I was suffering from insomnia one night and just put it on. And um, and in the morning, I thought, I I really want to do that, Um, that that, that kind of um, device of hedonistic young people um, being almost lawless and then becoming responsible citizens and um, possibly having a, you know, a secret to, um, to hide um, over the years. And in A Fatal Inversion, there's, there's 10 years between um, the hedonistic summer of the young people and then, um, you know, their chickens coming, coming home to roost. Yeah. Um, but I, I gave it 25 years because, because of the nature of the crime and the deception that I wanted to include. I, um, I knew it couldn't be in the digital age. It had to be the 90s. It had to be pre-mobile phones, really, or certainly pre, um, you know, sort of um, everyone having a mobile phone. So, yeah, yeah. So, I did, so I thought 95 was probably about the, the latest I could get away with. Um, and then, so, so yeah, so there'll be those inspirations. I, I might have heard a song that in, that might inspire a, a storyline. It might be a place. I, um, with the only suspect, I had all of these ingredients that I knew I wanted to include, but I couldn't really think of how it could work. It was just, you know, it was just germinating. Um, and I went for a walk. This was in lockdown when you were constantly looking for new places to go for a walk. And I went for a walk along a an old railway track in southeast London um, that had become a nature trail and it's half a mile long and um, I went with no expectation of having an idea or you know thinking of anything other than god isn't it boring being in lockdown 
Um, but by the time I'd come back after this mile walk, all of the all of the elements that I'd been playing with in my mind had knitted together into yeah. the plot. And so, you know, that is the creative process, isn't it? You, you you never know when it's going to strike. And that's why I try not to rush it along because I know that it needs time. Um, but so far it has come to me um, in the nick of time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it often happens that way, isn't it? Yeah. Like if, if you sort of are... If you sit down and really try and think, how is this yeah. going to work? It, <laughs> yeah. That's when a block, I think, can occur. But if you if you sort of take a step away, then suddenly it can in the back of your mind it can it can it work itself out. Yeah, that's so true. I always remember when I worked in advertising um, that clients would want to. I was a copywriter, and clients would want to get together with the creative team to brainstorm. Mm. And you know, so it's so hard to explain that you don't get your best ideas from brainstorming. Mm, yeah. um, you don't. You you don't just turn it on. No, that's yeah. right. It yeah. um it just happens at its own pace. And you know that's the beauty of a job like novel writing that you know you've got the luxury of that time. Um, whereas in a corporate environment, you really are expected to just turn it on and you know demonstrate it in front of clients. <laughs> And, what it's like to be creative and and, and you said that the only suspect which which is the the new book it, set in 1995 one of the reasons so that people didn't have phones i mean i want to ask about that more generally because there must be there must have been a lot of crime writers at some point that that's cursed when you know phones and the internet and oh social media God. and stuff GPS. must have ruined so many plot points that, yeah definitely that, that, that yeah. existed for so many years beforehand yeah i mean think about any agatha christie yeah you, you couldn't you couldn't really mm. set in the present day um it's because it, it's not just mobile phones although that is very tricky with my plots because i love a deception i love a mistaken identity mm-hmm. all of which can be rumbled in 10 seconds by you know having a quick look at instagram um or facebook or something but um it's um yeah it's it it's very tricky it's also um cctv is is very tough my plots tend to be set in in london it's the it's got more cctv than any other city outside of china in the entire world you know that you barely can walk a block without having a camera picking you up and even if it's even if there isn't an official one a municipal one or, um, you know, a, a one in the, you know, in the street, but a police camera, you know, people have got cameras on their doorsteps now. And, yeah, you know, it's yeah. actually, it's actually great for crime detection, but it's not great for getting away with crime, which is, you know, what you're trying to. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, okay. you can do it with um, the other side, the other passenger. That was a very intricate deception plot. And um, I, you know, I, I did have a, my work cut out making that work in in a contemporary setting mm. with mobile phones and with cameras. And, you know, basically I had to create black spots yeah. um, where there were there were no cameras for the, um, the you know, the, the perpetrators to get away with it. Um, but in reality, very, very hard to get away with a crime now, particularly murder. I mean, as we know, murderers are always always caught now um thank god but if you think of the heyday of the serial killer in the 70s that was because there was no there was no surveillance they they didn't even have um you know 999 or 911 Mm -hmm. um they didn't even have emergency call out um structures so so yes i had to go back in time and it turned out to be one of the most wonderful things i've done because i loved writing about the 90s it was just fab I mean, really yeah, because fantastic. I, I watched the, I can't remember which serial killer it was, but there was a doc, documentary on Netflix. It was a 70s one. And the stuff the guy was doing nowadays, as you say, he would have been caught within within the first day yeah. of, of what he yeah. was doing. But it was yeah. sort of unbelievable watching yeah. it and saying, how did he get yeah. away with this? Well, maybe it was the one on um, the Golden State Killer. Um, because I think it was the investigation into his spree of rapes and murders that um, led to 911 becoming a thing. Right, Before okay. that, you had to wait till the following morning and just call your local police precinct and of, say, oh, this guy came and murdered my girlfriend. That. Yeah, um, It's really um, extraordinary. And, you know, obviously um, they didn't have DNA either. So, yeah, that, so yeah. the combination of no surveillance, no mobile phones, 
no um you know sort of emergency call out and no dna meant that you know you could get away with you know anything in those days yeah, I think. unless there was a witness that, you? then you could get away with it but as soon as um as soon as they had dna and cameras and phones it's been kind of ruined, ruined it for the serial killers out there <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah which i think is in a way why it's um you know maybe domestic noir has has thrived in yeah. because it's mm. it's all behind closed doors yeah it's good point, and actually. yeah and so it's not about traditional procedural um investigations it's more in it's more about you know what suspicions in your mind you mm. know going back to the whole sort of hitchcockian sort of vibe yeah. So maybe that's why. Um, but hats off to Ian Rankin and Mark Billingham and Val McDermott and Cara Hunter and all of all of the authors doing procedural, um, brilliant procedural crime fiction because it's very hard yeah, now, absolutely. very, very hard. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Our House, which was your book, which came out in 2018. Um, and it was, a, it, was a really big, it was a really big hit for you, that book. It won... Crime and Thriller Book of the Year. Um, it was turned into a TV series. I mean, you know, what? What did you have much involvement in the in that TV show? What was that like? Uh, was that was winning that prize and having that kind of spotlight? Was that a really big moment for you? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, before I wrote Our House, I was about to give up because I'd written I can't remember exactly how many novels ten or ten or eleven, and I was quite demoralised. Even though I always understood that you know this was a career I wanted sort of to have longevity rather than, you know, sort of one hit wonders. Um, I I had reached the point where I was thinking, actually, I don't think it's going to happen. And oh, really? I'm actually not earning very much money. And um, I'm just full of dismay. And I really didn't want to turn into a sort of bitter also ran. And I could sense that that might start to happen. And so I thought, OK, I'll, I'll take a little break. And I was out of contract and I decided not to renew with the publisher I was with. And um, and luckily, my my husband, now my researcher, was was working full time then, and so that we did have a salary coming into our household. But it was quite tough because I didn't really know what to what to do next, having a little think about it. And um, and that was when I had the idea for our house, and I thought, well, actually, this is such a brilliant idea. It was based on a uh, on a real crime that I'd read about in in um, the Daily Mail. So you know, I didn't I didn't invent the crime. I was just the first to to bring it into fiction, and um, and I I just knew instantly that it was original, and that I and I had an idea for a structure that was quite unorthodox and quite innovative. And so I thought, well, the combination of this crime that no one's read about before, and telling the story in this new way. Um, you know, I'll go out with a bang. Yeah. So I'll do this last one. Um, and so that's what I did. And um, and it really took off um, in a way that was, you know, obviously, you know, really amazing and quite surprising. I had thought that I had thought that anyone who read it would enjoy it. But, you know, the difference is reaching that mass audience and working with a new publisher was was a big factor because they um, just got it into the hands of so many more people. And then once it was in hands, people started telling each other. And so we had a, a word of mouth situation as well. Um, so I think that I just benefited from it being quite zeitgeisty without my having sort of done that cynically. I just happened to be really interested in something that lots of other people were interested in, which was property. Yeah. And, it's it's funny yeah. that that how that happens although it may be of course confirmation bias because it's the people we speak to but you yeah. know the, the, when you know people are almost like right i'm going to give this one more shot or i'm yeah you know i'm going to leave it all out there and suddenly that's the one that that, that takes off and is the, is the big success because it's definitely happened to other guests that we've had on yeah have said similar things on the on the podcast as well whether it was like try to find an agent and they they sort of sent it out saying right i don't even care but this is it. i'm going to do it one more time and then suddenly it, it all happens for them so yeah it is interesting that it happened but it yeah, is. But... i think that you kind of um if i mean I, it definitely must be a psychological thing that yeah. once you kind of let yourself off the hook totally you kind yeah. of are yeah. in a space where you can do better because yeah. i definitely raised my game i wasn't doing anything that i hadn't done before i was just doing more of it in better 
and and it was a lot sharper and a lot more complicated but or if there wasn't a you know there wasn't anything in there that you wouldn't recognize as mm -hmm. louise candlish if you'd read my previous few novels yeah. but it was i just took it i just raised raised it to another level for me um, and I also didn't in any way compare with other people. I'd learned by that stage to only really compare with my own former career and my own previous achievements, because it's just, you know, you'll just drive yourself nuts yeah. if you're trying to sell as many copies as, you know, some superstar, or if you compare yourself to someone who's, you know, sort of had a Rich and Judy pick and a Reese pick and sold a million copies with their very first thriller you know, yeah. of course, you're going to be despondent, but, you know, by comparison. So I'd learned by then to only compare with myself, which was actually that was a breakthrough in itself. So there were quite a few breakthroughs around that time. And um, and, you know, it ended up having a having a happy ending. But yeah. it's a it's a good story, though, because it's inspiring. But I'm sure there are lots of situations where people give it a last shot and then nothing happens. No, and then, well, that, you know, yeah, they're that's, that's, driving that's a cab or whatever, yeah. which is, I'm sure, what I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> had you had you had you found it hard in the in the run up to that point in terms of renewing your contract and stuff? You know, was there were you having conversations with your with your editors and stuff about what books they thought you should be writing and 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 where where you should see yourself in the marketplace or something? Well, I was very lucky to have an agent who is still my agent, Sheila Crowley, who um, very much follows the philosophy that if an author is excited about something, they should be allowed to write it rather than saying, well, actually, that's selling well at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, because and I've, I've never wanted to chase trends. It's it's anathema to me. And, you know, but I have been guided, you know, when I was less experienced, I was guided by editors to make things more emotional rather than. Um, dark and detached which was you know more of my instinct um, but um, by that point I just I, I I just knew that I had to do it my way um, as as well as I could and you know see what happened but in terms of getting new contracts I was lucky to have a great agent who you know was always keeping editors interested in me even when the books weren't selling um, but also, I, you know, I, I'd always had quite a few fans within the industry and editors who wanted to, to work with me yeah. um, because they'd read previous books. But what I didn't have was any value in the marketplace. So, you know, I was having to, to write for not very much money. And, you know, even even figures of advances that sound enormous are not when you break it down to, yeah. you know, it's two years work. You've got to pay your tax. You've got to pay your agent. Um, you know, I was really, I was really on relatively on skid row before our house. I was, you know, barely contributing to the mm. household finances. Yeah. Um, certainly not paying into a pension or any of the things that you're supposed to be doing in your, you know, when was I was in my forties. So, you know, I really was, you know, not doing well financially. So, so I was allowed to write, but um, I wasn't paid very much. And that's, you know, that's, fine that's just how it is you know you shouldn't be paid enormous amounts of money if, if you can't sell books you should only get get the money once you've proven that you you can sell the books and that that can be a pressure as well for you know first-time yeah. authors who get these huge advances you know it's it's not very nice knowing that you you haven't earned out your advance and you know your value has gone down so the ideal tra trajectory is to kind of build and build and build and build yeah. But I've just not really had that. Mine's been such a up and down roller coaster. So I, I've just learned to, um, to you know, just to understand that I'm not entitled to have a contract. I'm not entitled to make make a lot of money. I have to earn it. Every single book has to earn it afresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, you could say it was the it was the start of a hot streak for you because the other passenger then went on to become uh, Richard and Judy book club pick as well um you know what was that experience like because i know it happened unfortunately during the pandemic so i imagine it was a slightly different experience yeah than otherwise might have been it was very different because not only did um did you not get to meet rich and judy in the flesh um because it, we were in lockdown but um rich and judy is a wh smith based promotion mm -hmm. and you know that wh smith travel is a, a big part of their business yeah. you know, yeah. sell a lot of a lot of fiction a lot of rich and judy out of the airports and the yeah, train stations yeah, but they weren't really operating um in the normal way some of them you know were barely open yeah. and so it, it 
so we weren't able to capitalize in in the way that you know you would have done had it been a couple of years early but earlier but I was still thrilled and you know it was always something that I'd wanted and you know I've always thought they've made great picks over the years um and I've always really admired their 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 taste the way they balance a debut with a established author with something that's a bit quirky um and I just always thought my books would sit quite well in a Richard GD book club and so um you know, and, and and our house wasn't wasn't in the book club. I hadn't ever been. I've had. Mm-hmm. I might have been long listed once before, actually. Um, so I just kind of I thought, oh well, that's not going to happen um, for me, and that's fine because I'd had our house had been Waterstones Thriller of the Month, and that was a real career changing thing. I think yeah. that's when I first appreciated how getting a spot on these big promotions, um, you know, it it doesn't just double your sales; it can you know increase them tenfold. Oh, wow, um, okay. It makes a big difference. Um, but no, it was great. And we did do the um, we did the the video interview um, rather than in the flesh. Yeah. We did it over Zoom and it was actually lovely there. Um, you know what? Um, what I'm not sure people realize is that they genuinely read everything multiple times and make the decision. Yeah, they're proper readers. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I think because they have, you know, they come from a journalistic background. They're both authors as well. They're yeah. not a celebrity fronting a book club they yeah. were readers yeah who yeah. wanted to bring bring their book picks to other people um and so um so when we chatted it was obvious that they read all of my books and you know they, they were able to compare um the other passenger with the ones that had come mm-hmm. before and oh, um oh. yeah i know it was it was lovely it was a career highlight i'm so happy to have had that experience even though it was um you know on screen rather than um yeah. in in the flesh and and I wanted to ask you about the TV version of Our House. I mean, what was the process with that? Did you have any involvement in that at all? Well, again, that was um, all happening in lockdown. Yeah. Um, and I've I've since been um, much more involved in the development of of TV stuff because so I've got several of my books that are under option at the moment and okay. in various stages of development. But with Our House, I um, my main involvement, I guess, was talking with Simon Ashdown, who was the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, he would ring every so often to pick my brains um, about some of the characters and um, he um, yeah so he he was my main point of contact so I wasn't involved in in the production and I wasn't involved in the writing the the scripts and I wasn't involved in casting Um, but I was just always kept in the loop and um, and then even though we had, you know, crazy um, COVID-related protocols on set, I was able to go go to the set oh, a few that, times and that must meet have been everyone. Watching uh, yeah, read out lines that you'd written, yeah. situations that you created and stuff. That's cool. Well, yeah, and he's such a skillful screenwriter that I actually couldn't remember which were my lines that he was using from yeah. the book and which were his own, yeah. um, because it's always a, a blend um um, yeah it was I found it quite surreal actually at first it took me a good hour on set to sort of just come to terms with it I found it a bit out of body um particularly because you know these sound stages are so you know they're so huge it was like this enormous great big sort of you know like a hangar um and you know and it had um a building of the house in it the interiors of the house were all built in this huge space um and so it just I think as an experience, generally, it was surreal because I'd never been to a drama um, TV set before. I'd been in a kind of studio audience and stuff like that, but I'd never yeah. seen a drama, um, you know, the interiors that, the, yeah. that they create. So that was just mind blowing in its own right. And then to to discover that, you know, it was it was my characters and <laughs> the kitchen, as I described it, um, yeah, it was really, the yeah. Of people that have kind of come to build this creation from yeah. scratch based on to your see ideas this huge stuff, it's, crew. it's amazing yeah, yeah. Absolutely. it was amazing it was wild yeah. um and then seeing it on screen was also wild um but you know it's it's unbelievable the amount of work that goes into getting mm-hmm. one of those shows on yeah, screen yeah. i mean we're talking people... about yeah incredible incredibly dedicated people who've been yeah you know, pitching it and pitching it and pulling it all yeah, together and yeah, getting yeah. the finance together. And then, you know, even before, you know, there's a script and then the casting and the exciting bit is really last minute. So I found it very, um, you know, really interesting. And I also found from a writing point of view, 
um, reading scripts and seeing the process of, of how a screenwriter adapts a book actually quite instructive for my writing. It made me think, why am I complicating things all the time? Yeah. When Because the, they strip out all of the complications. So all of the meta elements that a novelist loves, they strip that out before they even start because, you know, they don't need, you don't need to be recording a podcast or um, yeah, writing yeah, a confession yeah. or, um, you know, all of the stuff that novelists put in to keep it interesting and make it into, you know, a bit more multi-layered on the page. Yeah. They take that out and they're straight in with the with the drama. Mm -hmm. But I mean, but that's it. We've, we've checked it for people who, who have had their work adapted and stuff. And it's it's the difference between what works for a book very rarely works for a screen. And, and knowing, having the skill set for one, it, it's very often you don't necessarily have the skill set for the other. And and it's, I think often adapting your own book must be very difficult because you're attached to it in a way that other people aren't and you want to transfer things to the screen even though they won't work, but because yeah. you love them. And I think it's it's quite good to have someone come in and say, right, okay, this is great, but this stuff won't work. So we're going to yeah. check it. And there's no, there's no kind of emotional attachment to anything. Well, this is it. And, um, you know, the big difference is that in a, in a novel you're inside the character's head and you've got you know your your it's their thoughts and their yeah. interpretation of everything um but on screen you can't read a mind yeah. and so if you want if you want to discover what's in someone's head they have to say it to someone or they have yeah. to act in a certain way um and it just made me realize you know quite how much of quite how much of a psychological thriller is psychological yeah rather than thrilling. Yeah. Um, and so it made me kind of have a little look at the balance and just also about the settings, you know, moving people around a lot more rather than, you know, them always being being in one location. Yeah. I found it to be really helpful and fascinating. Um, basic stuff like, you know, you can you can see this is this is my this is my older brother in 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 the text of a book. But how do you get that across in a TV show or film? without just being obviously expositional yeah. or saying it in a natural way. Like it's a real skill to get yeah. that oh, kind of absolutely. information across to an audience without yeah. just being like, this is my brother, Steve. Hello, brother Steve. How are you? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Because, you know, anything that's obviously exposition or, you know, kind of um, signposting is, yeah. you know, really, you know, jarring and people hate it and amateurish. And so, you know, you've got to, you've got to, it's got to, it's got to work through action um yeah I think as well the sort of opening up the points of view so um you know because I I some of my favorite of my own novels have had one narrator in the first mm -hmm. person and I really enjoyed being in their mind like Jamie yeah. and the other passenger yeah, yeah. um and in in the only suspect we've got um Alex and Rick are the two narrators and um you know it's 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 absolutely restricted to what they want to tell the reader and how they interpret everyone else's motivations and what they do with, you know, the information they're given. Um, but on TV, you need to open it out to multiple yeah. points of view. Otherwise, you haven't got a clue what's going on. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, completely different um, disciplines, but but with a really nice overlap. Um, and in fact, I I've, um, have recently um, written a pilot for an original drama um and so i learned all of this on the job um and you know it was just just brilliant it's brilliant to try something new yeah in middle age and mid-career <laughs> and um it's just so it really benefits your original um sort of form if you try a new one i think yeah, yeah. definitely um so i mean i was going to ask that's one of the things you've been you've been working on what the the, the only suspect is out in very soon next month but what is in the pipeline? What are you working on next? Well, I'm working um, with multiple producers on more adaptations, including the same team that um, that did Our House um, are doing um, The Only Suspect. So Simon will be doing the screenplay for that. Um, but And then I'm working on my next novel as well, which um, has um, a probably has a bit more of a property element than The Only Suspect. It's um, set around holiday homes. So it's a real kind of haves and have nots sort of um, structure um, with quite a lot of social commentary. Um, so, um, yeah, but I've taken it out of London. That's that's the main thing. Um, that's the big difference for me. <laughs> I've taken it out of the city and we're on the coast. 
um, on the south coast yeah. so yeah so that's been <laughs> fun i've written it on my sofa in london but it's not it's not set on my sofa in london for once i imagine <laughs> your 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 husband's just you get you what happens if someone gets shot with a blank and, a, and he's like oh god well I'll, I'll go find out and yeah just, he's increasingly more you know dangerous uh, no place. absolutely the things he yeah the things he gets um asked to I won't, I, I won't even even say what the first thing was the opening scene that i've put in this new book is so crazy i wasn't sure if he could physically do it and so that was the first thing he had to <laughs> he had to research for me but yeah i mean i'll say to him when i was writing the heights i um you know i i said to him there's this middle-aged middle-class mum in Beckenham and she needs a gun how how does she get one what kind what kind you know she needs she needs a gun that's really easy to Flash shoot to she's never handled one jail. before in her life and then he goes away and then he'll come back and present it to me and it's just great brings a gun up gun wrapped in a towel <laughs> this is how this is how I appear to be so yeah. prolific because um I don't have to go and discover that for myself. Yeah, I certainly yeah. don't do the things. I mean, that's one of the the most brilliant things when people think you've done the stuff in your in your yeah. novels. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I'd be in prison. <laughs> what was the last book that you read? Um, the last book I read is not out yet at the time of speaking, but it will be out very soon, is The Mother by T.M. Logan, um, who writes classic thrillers. I think, you know, Harlan Coben style mm-hmm. thriller set in Britain. Um, I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with his book. So The Mother is the new one. And um, it's got a great opening scene. I think it's the opening scene where um, this woman has um, this mother has come out of prison and she attends her own funeral. All right. Okay. So it's That's got this great hook yeah, at the yeah. beginning, like, yeah. and then yeah. you you discover, um, you know, what she was in prison for, and um, you know, and and trying to find out the truth of what actually happened for a crime that that she didn't commit. Um, nice. So um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. Just a page turner, you know, real a proper, pure and simple page turner where that you know something totally adrenalized happens in every chapter and i just i really loved it really loved it it's great i love his books yeah no awesome um what about the last film that you watched um what was the last film i watched i can't remember what oh god it was um tell you what it was it was um knives out because i watched glass onion before i watched the original one so and i much preferred knives out to the glass onion it's more of a classic um, kind of Agatha Christie locked room, you know, here's all the pieces work out type story, isn't it? The first yeah, one? absolutely. And I, I, I'm someone who always does things in the wrong order. So, so the last thing I've watched on TV, and you will not believe this, was Broadchurch, which I had not <laughs> seen before, 10 years old. So, but in a way, I actually think it is, um, it's a good thing because I'm quite often inspired by things that other people have forgotten about. Mm-hmm. So I'm so yeah. late to them. Um, and again, with um, Knives Out, I had watched Blonde with the oh, yeah. same actress before Knives Out. And so it was really interesting to to come to that actor, having seen her in this, you know, incredible, intense portrayal of Marilyn Monroe, and then to sort of see her in this cosy crime Yeah, yeah very, very different roles. Um, yeah. yeah, so so they're the last things that, that I watched. And then I've, and also recently I watched, um, again, quite late, but late this time, only by a few months, um, the second season of White Lotus. Oh, yeah. I've heard nothing but good yeah. things about that show. I've, yeah. I've never watched either of them. So I've heard oh, you things, would so. love, everyone, everyone loves them. It's they're, good to suppose you come to these things a bit late and you kind of miss all the, all the hype and stuff. You yeah. can your mind up a little bit, you don't get caught up in, or don't get your expectations set too high or whatever. It's yeah, good. I think it's much better to be out of sync with everyone else. I have learned that in, in every aspect of my life. <laughs> um, well, but yeah, so so they're my latest viewings. And nice. um, and then what, about, what am I reading next? I've got a whole load of proofs. Oh, that's right. I'm going to read Lucy Clark's The Hike, which oh, yeah. um, is apparently uh, um, set in um, Norway. Um, and I think there's something very kind of um, 
enticing about the idea of crimes committed out in the wilderness yeah. where yeah. no one can hear you scream it's a it's a subgenre in its own right it's, it solves it? it often solves the mobile phone problem as yes well. yeah yes. <laughs> the signal on this yes. yeah exactly maybe that's why this has proliferated because there are so many books now set on remote islands yeah. and yeah, totally. up in the mountains yeah. and that's it that's it. Yeah. So you've either got to go back to the 90s or earlier, or you've got to get out of civilization. <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> They're the two choices here on in. <laughs> well, the very last thing we do is a super quick fire either or. And uh, I always say there's no right answer here apart from one of them. But we'll start off with <laughs> Gillian Flynn or Harriet Tice. Um, oh, I love both. Can I say both? No, I'm afraid you can't say both. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll have to go for um, Flynn then because Gone Girl was a game changer for us yeah, all. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, it was. Uh, TV or cinema? Or TV. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Um, Night Owl. Uh, music or no music when you're writing? No music. But if I do listen to music, it will have no lyrics. Yeah. It'll be a film score. And last one, uh, I'm going to go for audiobook or ebook. Audiobook. I love audiobooks and I love radio plays and um, radio dramatizations of if, books. If I'd asked you the question, real book or ebook, what would your answer have been? Real book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually don't have a, I used to have a Kindle. Um, but I um, I found that I was um, racing and actually becoming quite anxious. I don't know why. Oh, okay. I think it was something to do with kind of you know the percentage thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I stopped. I stopped reading on ebook, and so I always read in print now. Wow, fair enough. Okay, excellent. I always try to get ebooks to try and. Nobody ever picks ebooks, so I feel I have to fight for them. But... Oh, I know loads of people who only read ebooks. Oh, that's good. We need to get yeah. them on, on the podcast. Yeah, don't worry. They are absolutely <laughs> not going anywhere. And you can get all, all the books for 99p as well. So. I know. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's nuts. Yeah. It's just crazy. <laughs> well, thanks very much to Louise. That, that was a lot of fun, that chat. And you know, interesting always, I think, as well, to speak to authors whose work has been adapted for the screen in some way. Um, and, you know, I do wonder if the profile of, I mentioned this at the start, but the profile of being on these lists, the picks for the Richard and Judy Book Club and stuff like that, helps your book get noticed and helps your book get picked up for these these different things. Obviously, TV is always looking for these sort of uh, domestic noir thriller type books as well they're very popular on tv as well as being books as well absolutely i mean it has to be a good thing being on these lists and from what she says the rich and judy uh book club is actually a you know i was going to wonder how much involvement do people like like Rich yeah, and judy actually have true, in these yeah. things but they really do seem to read everything and, and take the time to, to to get to know the book and the author which is quite yeah nice. yeah not just reading that book but also the author's other yeah, books and the ones, stuff. yeah yeah, yeah so exactly it is, yeah. Yeah, I always thought it was just sort of here. I'll provide my name for this thing, yeah, but slap it on a sticker exactly. and you're done. But it's, it's obviously more than that. It's quite nice. Yeah, if it, if it isn't more than that, then they've got very very good researchers clearly that can <laughs> yeah. feed them their lines. Um, but yes, so again, thanks to Louise for coming onto the podcast, and uh, you can pick up the only suspect now. As I say, it was out yesterday in the bookshops, and we'll put a link in the podcast description as well if you want to pick it up online. Um, and next week. For our 150th episode, we are going into the world of indie or self-publishing. Yeah, next week we have a very interesting guest, uh, Mr. Ryan Cahill. Uh, he's a self-pubbed author, as Marco said, and he's a fantasy author. So we're moving away from crime into the fantasy realm. And Ryan's someone who's fairly new um, in the scene. And the reason we've picked him for our 150th episode spectacular is because um, he's really a great example of someone who has done a fantastic job of branding themselves doing the research you know marketing uh, making an impact and his books have been massive successes and i think if you're at all interested in the self-pubbed area and and want to get some hints and tips then ryan is the man for you absolutely he talks about how it's not just you know if you're going to go down that route and take it seriously as he clearly does then you have to think of yourself not only as the author but also your own publisher and everything yeah, that absolutely. that entails 
Uh, but he's you alluded to it there. He's had massive success. His first book was out in 2021, I think. But his third novel just came out and broke uh, the Broken Bindings website. So many people, because he also gets them printed by the Broken Binding. It bro- so many people were searching for it and wanting to buy it. So, uh, you know, he is the example of, um, I think, important that it's a modern success story in self-publishing because yes. we have had people like Hugh Howey on before who mm-hmm. obviously um, broke through with wool uh, and still, I think, does self-publish some stuff, does trad publish other stuff. But uh, I, I've always thought that there was a, a time at the start of self-publishing, if you like, around the 2010s that... Um, it was the time to get into it, and if you were a success, then suddenly you could make a, a huge, huge success of it, a huge amount of money out of it. But m- more recently, it's obviously more difficult because the market's more flooded, and it's really interesting to hear totally. what Ryan has to say about how he does it. So, yeah, it's it's a great episode, so we hope you tune in for that one. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, we would really appreciate it if you could take the time to give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app because that allows us to continue to get great guests on the podcast. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, you can always drop us an email, which is podcast at rightgear.co.uk or you can send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at UK page one. I, I, I always on, which, I, I always pause I was every, giving you every time I get this point I'm, I'm like I really sh- I really should have it's literally as easy as going to writing.exchange slash at page one pod and you'll find us on Mastodon there writing.exchange slash at page one pod at page one pod slash at page one pod yes uh-huh. that's I mean that's I think that's that's just bad bad to the written grammar <laughs> that doesn't make any sense Oh dear. We'll we'll try and get you up to speed uh, with modern <laughs> technology before technology. the next episode. Exactly. Before the next episode. But otherwise have a great week and uh, we'll see you next episode. See you later. Mm-hmm.